The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focus summary of Book 8, Chapter 6. This chapter gives us the opportunity to examine, side by side, the hearts of three very different men, as they come together in a single scene with Esmeralda at its center. As we suspected, the first of these three men, Phoebus, was not dead. He had been taken to the house of a surgeon, who spent a week tending to his severe but not fatal wounds. To Phoebus's great annoyance, he had to be examined by the bishop's court while on his sickbed. And to avoid further inconveniences, he slipped quietly away as soon as he was feeling better. That the murder victim was alive, and that the key witness had vanished, did nothing to disturb the legal proceedings. Phoebus rejoined his company in the Ile de France to avoid appearing in the trial, feeling vaguely that he should play a ridiculous part in it. And in retrospect, he thought, Esmeralda probably was a witch. Safe in the fact that the hanging of a witch was an everyday occurrence unlikely to stir up much talk, he simply went on about his business and his first order of business was returning to the fiancé he had passed over in favor of Esmeralda, Fleur de Lis. Though Fleur de Lis had been haunted by images of the sorceress, her goat with its magical alphabet, and Phoebus's long absence, seeing him in his new uniform, all the tortured memories dissolve in a blush of pleasure. She makes a few affectionate complaints about his absence, which he answers with flattery, evasion, and claims to honor that make Fleur de Lis quiver with admiration. When further questions tax his easily exhausted imagination, he turns her attention to the square. Observing the crowd, he asks what the commotion is, and she tells him that a witch is to be hanged. Her mother then launches into one of the tiresome, nostalgic speeches that had so annoyed Phoebus the last time we saw them together. But he simply ignores her, focusing all his attention instead on Fleur de Lis's opportunely gaping neckerchief. Gazing impudently, this man, who had only recently declared undying love for a beautiful gypsy, now thinks to himself— how can anybody ever fall in love with any but a fair-skinned woman? At that convenient moment, her mother leaves the room to attend to some domestic detail, and left alone with Fleur de Lis, Phoebus's brain fills with strange thoughts. They are alone. She is his betrothed. There is no crime in eating your fruit before it is harvested. Feeling like, quote, a deer which feels the hot breath of the pack, Unquote. Fleur de Lis rises and rushes out to the balcony. From there, she can see that a throng has overtaken the square. This event seems to have attracted all that is most unclean in the population, as they stand around, laughing, shouting, and shrilly gossiping about the impending execution. A tumbrel then enters the square, surrounded by cavalry, officers of justice, and police and led by Jacques Charmeleau. Inside the wagon sits Esmeralda, in her shift, with her long, glossy black locks falling over her delicate, half-naked shoulders, a rough gray cord about her neck, and little Jolly, also bound, curled up at her feet. 
Fleur de Lys at once identifies the girl about to be hanged as that wicked gypsy girl with the goat. And, made suspicious by Phoebus's assertion that he doesn't know what she means, and by a vague recollection that Esmeralda's trial had something to do with a captain, she insists that they stay and see it out. Esmeralda, thin, weak, shattered, lifeless, and despairing, is still sublimely beautiful, and her beauty evokes pity from the hard-hearted crowd. As the church doors open to receive her into its dark shadows, the mob becomes hushed and solemn. Quote, Over that beautiful being full of life and youth, caressed by the warm air of spring, bathed in sunshine, unquote. Old men in the darkness chant dismal psalms for the dead. She alights from the cart and is led to the foot of the steps leading to the porch, when the second of our three men, Claude Frollo, leads a procession of priests towards her. His head is thrown back, his eyes fixed, and his flesh so pale he resembles one of the marble bishops upon the monuments in the choir. Gazing upon her nakedness with jealousy, passion, and desire, he says to her aloud, Young girl, have you asked God to pardon your faults and failings? And then, bending down, says quietly in her ear, Will you be mine? I can save you even yet. She calls him a demon, and asks again what he has done with her Phoebus. As the miserable archdeacon replies again, He is dead. He raises his head and sees, across the square, Phoebus himself, on the balcony of the Gondolorier house. His murderous jealousy aroused again, he tells Esmeralda, So be it, die yourself. And he turns his back on the prisoner, and rejoins the line of priests. As Esmeralda's final hour approaches, and the executioner prepares to lead her on her last journey, she raises her dry and fevered eyes to heaven. All at once, she utters a shriek, a shriek of joy, for upon yonder balcony she sees her beloved Phoebus. As she reaches out her arms to him rapturously, he frowns. A lovely young girl looks at him with angry eyes, and both vanish hastily through the balcony window. At this cruel slight, Esmeralda concludes that he must believe that she tried to kill him and she falls senseless to the pavement. As she is about to be lifted into the tumbrel, the third of our men, Quasimodo, bestrides the balustrade of the gallery, grabs a rope that had been fastened to one of the columns, slides down the façade, flings the hangman's assistance to the ground, seizes the gypsy girl in one hand as a child might a doll, holds her above his head, and in perhaps the most broadly known single moment of this novel, cries, Sanctuary. He carries her carefully, as if he fears he might break her, seeming to feel that she is a delicate and exquisite thing made for other hands than his. Then, all at once, in a description that brought on one of my emotion-choked pauses, quote, he presses her close in his arms, upon his angular bosom, 
as his treasure, his only wealth, as her mother might have done. Unquote. In that moment, Hugo says, Quasimodo was truly beautiful. The crowd's cries of Noel could be heard from afar, including by the old recluse, who waited with her eyes riveted to the gallows. The second of my posts was called Dignity. Reviewing the chapter in preparation for this commentary, I happened upon a connection to something I had discussed with my eighth-grade literature students that very day. We had just finished Act Four of Cyrano de Bergerac. I will do my best to avoid any major spoilers in this discussion, since I definitely intend to read that play with you. In Act Four, a company of French cadets has been besieged by the Spanish. They are weak, weary, starving, and homesick, and they are about to face a battle from which no one expects to come out alive. When a woman appears among them, having crossed the Spanish lines to die in the arms of her love, they are stirred with an impulse of gallantry. The stage directions say that they all begin rushing about, elbowing each other, brushing off their clothes, saying, Soap! Here's a hole in my... A needle. Who has a ribbon? Your mirror, quick. My cuffs. A razor. She has inspired them to die with dignity. I told my students that the scene reminded me of one from the true story of Endurance, Shackleton's incredible voyage. I first learned of this scene from my mother, who told me about it with tears in her eyes, and said it reminded her of her father. I have since read the book, and I relate deeply to her reaction. For those of you who don't know, Shackleton was an intrepid explorer who in 1914 was determined to be the first to cross the continent of Antarctica on foot. He famously ran the following ad in the newspaper to recruit crew members for this expedition. Quote, Men wanted for hazardous journey. Low wages, bitter cold, Long hours of complete darkness. Safe return, doubtful. Honor and recognition in event of success. Unquote. Little did they know that the journey they would take would be infinitely more hazardous than the one they had planned. It is a story worth reading in its nail-biting and heroic entirety, but the gist of it is this. The struggle began when their ship, the Endurance, was trapped in ice for ten months before finally being crushed, and ended with a miraculous journey by Shackleton and five companions who sailed in a lifeboat for South Georgia Island over 800 miles of the South Atlantic's most treacherous seas. Upon reaching the island, Shackleton and two of his men had to cross its mountainous terrain on foot to reach a whaling station on the opposite side. And here is the moment the scene in Cyrano recalled. As they finally reached the station, quote, Almost simultaneously, all three of them remembered their appearance. Their hair hung down almost to their shoulders, and their beards were matted with salt and blubber oil. Their clothes were dirty, threadbare, and torn. Worsley reached under his sweater and carefully took out four rusty safety pins that he had hoarded for almost two years. 
With them, he did his best to pin up the major rents in his trousers. Unquote. Two years stranded on icy seas, and they still cared to preserve a gentlemanly appearance. Just one last detail about this story that I have to mention. Apparently, when the station foreman saw the three men, he said, Who the hell are you? And when the man in the center stepped forward and said, My name is Shackleton. Some say that the foreman turned away and wept. Do you know what scene in Notre Dame de Paris brought these to mind? It is the one in which poor Esmeralda, being driven in a tumbrel through the public square to her place of execution, and wearing only her shift, which was not securely fastened, holds it between her teeth in an instinctive effort to preserve her modesty. That scene prompted this tender and heartbreaking observation by Hugo. Quote, Even in her misery she seemed to suffer at being thus exposed almost naked to the public gaze. Alas, it is not for such tremors that modesty is made. Unquote. The scenes I described are almost incidental to all the works I mentioned, and just look at the profound meaning and inspiration that we can draw from them. The last of my posts is a visual one, called Masaccio versus Raphael, so you'll have to either visit the Facebook group or consult my Sunday email for the image. In a previous post called The Lost Art of Art Appreciation, I talked about the value of having a mental picture gallery from which you can summon an image that exemplifies any feeling or impression or situation that you might contemplate. I said that Hugo seemed to possess such a store of art in his subconscious. This last chapter contained yet another example. Talking about Esmeralda, in the bottom of the tumbrel, having been scorned by Phoebus, and being led to her death, he says, quote, Upon this last round of the ladder of opprobrium and misfortune, she was still beautiful. Her large black eyes looked larger than ever from the thinness of her cheeks. Her livid profile was pure and sublime. She resembled her former self as one of Masaccio's virgins resembles a virgin by Raphael. Feebler, thinner, weaker. Unquote. I understood, of course, abstractly what he meant, but I had no Masaccios and only vague outlines of Raphael's in my mind. I was curious, so I went looking. I have provided you side by side comparison of three Madonnas by Masaccio and three by Raphael, and the lively, fleshy, warm robustness of the latter are indeed in marked contrast with the drawn, somber gauntness of the former. I hope at this point in the novel you are completely hooked, because what a tremendous dramatic situation has been established, and there's a lot to come. <laughs>